Section 6 of Symbolism by Johann Adam Moeller Translated by James Burton Robertson This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Memoirs of Dr. Moeller, Part 4 The heathenish fanaticism which Goethe had called up and which was exercising such destructive sway, Friedrich Schlegel opposed by a noble Christian enthusiasm. This was the aim of all his labors. This was the task of his life, and which he so gloriously accomplished. And whether we behold him pouring forth the religious effusions of his earnest, reflective muse, or displaying in comparative philology his admirable analytic skill, or unfolding with such marvelous depth the peculiar genius of ancient and modern literatures, or tracing on the map of the world's history the workings of God's providential dispensations, or throwing out in metaphysics his rapid, searching, intuitive perceptions, or before an audience of celebrated painters like Shadow, Beat, Cornelius, and Overbeck, revealing the fountains of artistic inspiration, we are lost in wonder at a mind of such depth and universality. It is no exaggeration to say that the whole modern art, literature, and science of Catholic Germany sprang, kindled up by the fire which this Promethean spirit stole from heaven. Of the genius of Novalis, who was cut off at the premature age of twenty-nine, it is impossible to speak with the same confidence, but it may be asserted that if inferior to his illustrious friend, in solidity of judgment, he was endowed with nearly the same depth of understanding and with even higher poetical imagination. His writings in prose and in poetry exhibit a mind instinctively Catholic, wrestling with the prejudices imbibed from a Protestant education. His tender piety, which among other things frequently exhibited itself in an extraordinary devotion to the glorious Mother of God, unique perhaps among Protestant writers, stamped on all his poetical conceptions a character of indescribable purity. And had his brilliant career not been so speedily terminated, he would, under the patronage of that powerful advocate, have in all probability reached the temple after which he had so fondly yearned. As in the cloudless atmosphere of the south, the stars of heaven shine with greater effulgence, so those lights of human existence, love, friendship, patriotism, that beam along the immortal verse of Novalis, receive, as it were, a more magical glow from the exquisite purity of his devotional feelings. The genius of Gurus exhibits the same wondrous combination of deep, comprehensive understanding and lofty imagination, though not in the same beautiful harmony as we find developed in Friedrich's legal, and as, in an immature state, was perceptible in Novalis. This combination is the rare privilege of the most favored sons of genius, and when, as in the case of Gurus, it is consecrated to the service of truth, it becomes indeed the most potent instrument of good. Gurus, who devoted his energetic youth and manhood chiefly to political and historical literature, wherein he combated at once the absolutists of democracy and the revolutionists of absolutism, has, in the evening of life, gone into the sanctuary of the mystic theology, as, after the fatigues and agitations of the day, men love to retire into the secret oratory. The other great thinkers of Catholic Germany, 
like Molenter, Windishman, Gunder, and others, have in the several departments of Jewish traditions, Oriental philosophy, and speculative theology displayed great extent of erudition and depth of understanding, and rendered eminent services to the Church. In this rapid survey, I can notice only the most celebrated men in the most important departments, but it may be asserted without fear of contradiction that in almost every branch of literature and science, Catholic Germany has in our times produced most distinguished men, and has nobly redeemed herself from the reproach of intellectual sloth that once deservedly attached to her. The historical school, founded by the eminent Protestant John van Mueller, and continued by the Protestant Voigt, Leo, and Herder, is more or less distinguished for impartiality, extensive research, and a noble appreciation of the social influence of the Catholic Church. This school, when we look to its general tone and spirit, particularly in its most distinguished ornament, Herder, belongs certainly more to Catholic than to Protestant literature, and certainly in no department of German learning, genius, and rectitude shown to greater advantage or been attended with more beneficial results. If the department of special history has not been cultivated by the Catholic party with such brilliant success as by the Protestant, the former, on the other hand, has produced the most celebrated men in public and constitutional law, and among these, Haller, Adam Mueller, Jark, and Phillips hold the most conspicuous place. Yet theology, the queen of sciences, was still unrepresented in the high circles of intelligence. In the last century, the Jesuit Statler and the Augustinian Klupfel, and in the present age Zimmer, Dobmeier, Bishop Saylor, Lieberman, and Brunner, had treated dogmatic theory with remarkable acuteness and learning, and some of them with great taste and elegance of diction and clearness of method. But a high creative spirit was still wanting. Divine Providence took compassion on that afflicted German church, and at the right moment sent her the aid she most needed. It was in the beautiful province of Swabia that through the whole Middle Age, and down to recent times, has ever furnished church and state, art and science, with the most distinguished men. This great luminary arose. And this leads me to the subject, my biography. John Adam Moeller was born on the 8th of May, 1796, at Ergshim, near Mergunthheim, on the confines of Franconia and Swabia, about 20 miles from Wurzenburg. His father, who was a substantial innkeeper of the place, resolved to give his son the benefit of a liberal education. In his twelfth year, Muller began to attend the gymnasium at Mergunthheim, a town two miles distant from the place of his birth, and every evening he was obliged to return home during his four years' attendance at this school, he was distinguished as well for a peculiar gentleness of disposition and blameless conduct as for his diligence and love of study. Yet his mental powers were but of slow development and gave no earnest of the intellectual eminence he was destined one day to reach. In most branches of study, he was surpassed by some of his fellow students, although the strong predilection for history, which he evinced even at this early period, and the keen interest he took in the events of the day are well worthy of attention. Such a love for historic lore was also a characteristic trait in the boyhood of Gibbon. 
it was Molaire's happiness to receive a religious education from his virtuous parents. For in Germany, more than in any other country, the task of education, in the strict sense of the word, devolves on parents far more than on the heads and teachers of schools. Under the modern system of gymnasial instruction, which for the last fifty or sixty years has there prevailed, the students of all the schools, whether elementary, commercial, or Latin, are mere day scholars, who, after the prescribed hours of study, must return to the paternal roof, with the exception of the catechetical instruction, which in many parts of Catholic Germany is now most solid and excellent, and with exception for the strict hours of attendance at Mass, and the frequentation of the sacraments, the moral training of the pupil, the culture of his religious feelings, and the superintendence of his moral conduct, devolve on his parent or guardian. The defects of this system, in most instances, are obvious, and are deeply deplored by the most eminent Catholics of Germany. Yet it cannot be denied that where, as is the case of the subject of this memoir, parents are very religious, it may be attended with advantages. Muller had the misfortune to lose his mother very early, and his father, though a most worthy and excellent man, treated him with a certain degree of harshness. On his return from school, he would sometimes compel him to perform the household duties, and during the vacations, to labor in the field. On one occasion, a friend of his youthful days came to his house, and saw him pouring out wine for his father's customers, while on the table lay a grammar, which at every spare interval he would take up and study. After attending the gymnasium of Borgenthon for four years, Molaire repaired in 1814 to the Lyceum in the Swabian city of Elwagen in order to prepare for the study of theology. After remaining there some time, he began to entertain serious doubts whether he were equal to the discharge of the arduous and awful duties of the priesthood and already revolved in his mind the project of embracing another of the learned professions. For this end, the consent of the father was to be obtained, and the conduct of that father on this occasion, harsh and injudicious as it undoubtedly was, and perilous as it might have been, was, under the mysterious guidance of Providence, the means of giving a great teacher to the church, and a most edifying minister to her altars. On his sons soliciting his approbation and support in a new professional career, the father replied that the most fervent wish of his heart was to see his son a worthy Catholic priest, but that if he felt not the call from heaven to that state, he might give up his studies and return to the parental roof, where he would meet with kindness and find occupation. Quote, but, said he, as regards any other of your liberal professions, I can never give my consent to your embracing one of them, unquote. When subsequently censured for his conduct, the father replied to a friend, quote, I could not possibly see my son take to the study of the law, for I have seen so many young men at the universities make a shipwreck of their faith and lose the heritage of eternal life, unquote. When we consider the state of the German universities at that period, the pernicious doctrines which were then inculcated from so many professional chairs, the unbelief and immorality of so many of the students, we may well understand the apprehensions of this honest and simple-minded man. However, we may feel disposed to condemn his severity. But Molaire, 
whose talents by this time were quickly and vigorously developing, felt an irresistible attraction to the learned pursuits, and after some consideration, he returned to the study of theology. In the following year, he repaired to the University of Tübingen, where the theological faculty numbered among its members distinguished professors like Dre, Herbst, and Herscher. Here he entered the ecclesiastical seminary, and after passing four years in the study of divinity, under the guidance of these distinguished masters, he was ordained priest on the 18th of September, 1819, and thus reached the term of all his labors, and obtained the most ardent desire of his heart. The first fruits of sacerdotal grace he wished to offer up to God by devoting himself to the pastoral ministry, and accordingly, in the following year, he officiated as assistant vicar in the successive parishes of Waldenstad and Riedlingen in Wurttemberg. I shall here take the liberty of citing the testimony so honorable to both parties which this principal in the last-named parish, the now canon Strobel, has given respecting the life and ministry of the subject of this memoir. During the period in question, quote, his pastoral career was characterized by such an amiable, modest, and in every respect, deportment, joined to such holy earnestness in all his functions and intercourse with men, that he won in an eminent degree the love and veneration of the whole congregation, and especially of the young scholars whom he had to catechize. His style of preaching, simple and feeling, addressed itself more particularly to the hearts of his hearers, and thus atoned for defects in delivery. The inhabitants of Riedlingen boasted of their vicar, whose name even now is mentioned among them with love and respect. The half-year which he spent by my side was to be my friend, the then-chaplain Ehanger and myself, a period of cordial mutual cooperation. But even then his desire, I might almost say his destination, for learned pursuits was so decided that every hour he could devote to them was precious to him and therefore the official writings which, as my assistant in the rural deanery, he was obliged to go through, he felt as an irksome duty. To lighten this burden as much as possible, my friend E. Hinger and myself undertook a portion of his task, and said to him in jest that we expected he would give us in return some fruits of his learned labors. I must here make mention of a visit, which at this time the venerable and celebrated Bishop Sailor honored me with, Muller made on the mind of this prelate a deep impression, and the manner in which he fixed his eyes on him threw our modest vicar into great embarrassment. This amiable bishop made particular inquiries respecting this interesting young man, as he termed him, and testified the great hopes he entertained of him, which the latter afterwards so well justified. That, moreover, Muller's way of thinking had not then the same turn which it afterwards took is notorious, and I well remember that on seeing some essays he had delivered at several ecclesiastical conferences, the venerable and learned curate, Haas, expressed with apprehension a hope that this young man, for whom he entertained such sincere affection, might regain the path of strict orthodoxy, and the old curate, Birched, once said on a similar occasion, quote, Well, well, it is allowable for such a learned young man to believe a little differently from us old men, but he will later recur to our way of thinking." Kuhn, 
Biography in the Quarterly Theological Review of Tubingen, pages 578 and 580. The pernicious influence that the neologists had exerted over public opinion in southern Germany, particularly in Baden and Württemberg, I have already described the theological faculty in the University of Tübingen, at which Muller had studied, was, to a certain extent, and in some of its professors, infected with those doctrines, and even Herscher, who has since become so eminent a divine, then gave in to many of those false opinions. It was not to be expected that a young man, like Muller, should have escaped totally free from the contagion of doctrines, often put forth with seductive eloquence and learning, and then held by so many fellow students, and the majority of the Swabian clergy. Quote, the church, says his friend Professor Rune, had not yet won all the affections of his heart, and the objects of his enthusiasm lay, in part, beyond her circle. His views did not entirely harmonize with all her doctrines, nor agree with all her disciplinary institutions. Yet from the outset of his career, he was a conscientious priest, and preserved intact the sanctity of the sacerdotal character, and most assuredly he was devoid of all perfidy towards the church, whose minister he had become. Unquote. To Benjamin Quartrell Schrift, pages 580 and 1838. His passion for learning was too irresistible to keep him long aloof from the university life. After passing a year in the pastoral office, he returned on the 31st, October, 1820, to the University of Tübingen, where he was soon nominated to the place of tutor in the gymnasial institute, connected with the convictorium, or ecclesiastical seminary of that town. During the two years he filled this place, he devoted himself with uncommon ardor and astonishing success to the study of the ancient classics, particularly the Greek philosophers and historians. The study of these ancient masters of human eloquence and speculation brought out and developed all those faculties wherewith nature had so richly endowed him. In this school, he acquired that delicacy of taste, that solidity of judgment, that vigor and dexterity of ratiocination, that clearness and precision of language, which afterwards so eminently characterized him. The insight, too, which he hereby obtained in the nature of paganism, as well as the acquaintance he formed with the various systems of ancient philosophy, was of the greatest service to the future speculative divine and learned church historian. And, in allusion to the importance of these preparatory studies for his subsequent career, Muller used to speak jestingly, quote, of the times when he lived in heathenism, unquote. So strong was his love for ancient literature that in 1822 he drew up a petition to the Württemberg government soliciting the nomination to a place that had just become vacant in the philological faculty. And there is no doubt that had he pursued this career, he would have reached the highest eminence. But Providence had reserved far higher destinies for him. While he was on the point of forwarding this petition to the government, the theological faculty that had long observed his great talents transmitted to him, with unanimous consent, a written invitation to accept the place of private teacher in theology a place which is always sure in time to conduct to a professorship. Muller hesitated not a moment, gave up his cherished plan, accepted the offer that had been so graciously made him, 
and thus became bound by new and more intimate ties to the interests of the Church. His appointment to this place was, on the 22nd of September, 1822, confirmed by the government, which at the same time furnished him with pecuniary means for undertaking a great literary journey through northern and southern Germany, in order that, by visiting the most celebrated seats of learning and conversing with distinguished professors, he might the better qualify himself for the important office he was about to enter on. He began his journey in the autumn of 1822, and visited successively the universities of Jena, Leipzig, Hale, Berlin, Göttingen, and on his return visited those of Prague, Vienna, and Landshut. The conversation and literary advice of so many distinguished scholars and theologians, whether Catholic or Protestant, whom he met with on his journey, were doubtless of the greatest service to the future development of his mind, and there was one individual in particular from whom Moiler received lasting benefit. The celebrated Planck, Protestant professor of theology at Göttingen, had been the first to revive, I had better, perhaps, have said introduce, the study of the fathers in Protestant Germany. By his profound study of Christian antiquity, he had been led to approximate very closely to the doctrines of the Catholic Church, and it was said that more than one member of his family evinced no little inclination to embrace its faith. With Planck, Muller held much conversation on the subject of the fathers and of church history, and the result was that several neological opinions, which the latter had imbibed in the school of Tubingen, were dispelled by this learned and enlightened Protestant. Planck urged him also to prosecute with diligence the study of the fathers, a study which, in the school of Hermes, and in that of the Wurttemberg and Baden neologists, had been, from their strong leaning to heretical and semi-rationalistic opinions, as well as from a conceited contempt for all former ages, grossly neglected. The nearer insight into the essence of rationalism, which, from his visit to Protestant Germany, Muller had obtained, the perception of the dreadful moral ravages it had occasioned, its dry and heartless worship, its churches vacant, even during the sermons of the most celebrated preachers, the unbelief that had spread from the upper to the lower classes of society. The sight of all these evils, I say, tended heartily to disgust the subject of this memoir with all those sickly offshoots of rationalism that the Swabian innovators were endeavoring by degrees to engraft on the Catholic Church. On his return to Tübingen, Muller took Wurzenberg in his way and called on his friend Dr. Ben Kurt, then rector of the seminary, and who has since succeeded him in the deanery of that city. Dr. Bernkert affirms that he found Moeller vastly improved by this journey, and a more decided Catholic tone pervading all his theological views. Having arrived at Tübingen in the summer of 1823, Moeller opened his theological course with lectures on church history and occasionally on canon law. Here he devoted himself with his characteristic ardour an untiring perseverance to the study of the fathers and of ecclesiastical history. The first fruit of his labors was the work entitled quote, Unity in the Church or the Principle of Catholicism, unquote, 1825. This work is now out of print, nor have I been able anywhere to procure a copy of it. Quote, in this book, says one of his biographers, there was much 
which in his riper years he no longer approved of, yet it must ever be regarded as a noble proof of his originality of mind, as well as of the depth of his feelings, and gave earnest of his future eminence in theological literature. The reputation which it soon acquired for the author induced the Baden government to make him, the following year, the offer of a theological chair at the University of Freiburg in Briesgau. This honorable offer Muller declined, but was thereupon immediately raised to the dignity of professor, extraordinarily at his own university. In the year 1827, a more important work entitled, quote, Athanasius the Great, or the Church of His Time in Her Struggle with Arianism, unquote, tended vastly to extend Muller's reputation. There were many reasons which induced him to make the Arian controversy and the illustrious saint who played so salutary and glorious a part in that religious dispute the subject of special investigation and description. Now, as in the age of Constantius, the cardinal mystery of Christianity that the elder Protestantism in its destructive march had yet respected was assailed with a subtlety and a violence that even Arianism itself had never displayed. Those rationalizing views of the whole system of Christianity, but timidly put forth by the heretics of the fourth century, were developed and proclaimed with an unblushing effrontery and a recklessness of impiety that would have startled and shocked the extremist Arian. Now, as in the former period, lukewarmness and timidity, not to say cowardice, characterized a great proportion of Catholics, while the oppression of the German church by the secular power, if less open and violent than in the age of the son of Constantine, was far more insidious, refined, and systematic. And what more glorious model could be presented to many of the degenerate churchmen of Germany than that illustrious saint who combines in himself the characters of the learned and profound theologian, the prudent and indefatigable prelate, the holy ascetic, and the intrepid confessor. The work is divided into six books. In the first, we find a very clear, learned, and elaborate dissertation on the doctrine of the Aunt Nicene Fathers, respecting the divinity of our Lord and the Trinity in general. The following five books are taken up with the public history of St. Athanasius, with a copious analysis of his various works against the heathens, the Arians, and the Apollinarists, and with a very full account of the Arian heresy from its rise down to the death of St. Athanasius in the year 373. The author, by giving copious extracts from contemporary historians, and also from the letters of St. Athanasius, and the other defenders of the Catholic cause, as well as from those of their Arian opponents, completely transports us into the age he describes. It is, however, to be regretted that the narrative of events is too often interrupted by doctrinal dissertations and analytic expositions of writings, and this defect renders the perusal of this valuable work sometimes irksome. All the personages who took part in this mighty conflict are portrayed with much truth, life, and interest. In the hostile camp, we find the false-hearted, double-tongued Arius, the crafty Eusebius of Nicomedia, the hypocritical Valens and Eurasius, the audacious Aetius, the weak and tyrannical Emperor Constantius, and lastly, 
the pagan enthusiast, Julian, who hangs over the church like a dark, boding, but happily passing thundercloud. On the side of the combatants for truth, the firmness of Pope Julius, the noble-minded character of his successor, Liberius, the intrepid fortitude of the venerable Osius, the burning zeal of Marcellus of Ancyra, the high courage but harsh and intemperate zeal of Lucifer of Caglieri, the genius, the eloquence, the mild virtues, and unshaking constancy of Hilary of Poitiers, and lastly, the lofty genius and majestic character of the great Athanasius, alternately challenge our admiration and enlist our sympathy. Much as all Catholics are taught from childhood to revere the character of this great confessor, yet none can rise from the perusal of Muller's work without feeling increased admiration for his genius and increased love and veneration for his virtues. In the writings of Athanasius, what marvelous acuteness of dialect, what prodigious depth of observation do we discover? What intuitive insight into the mind of Scripture? What dexterity in the application of its texts? What knowledge in the traditions of the fathers? And what instinctive adherence to the spirit of the church? In his life, what magnanimous intrepidity in the defense of truth? What unwearied perseverance in the path of duty? What unbroken constancy under persecution? What presence of mind in the face of danger? What sagacious insight into the wiles and machinations of heretics? What generosity towards his enemies? How temperate, too, is his zeal, and what a spirit of conciliation, where compromise is possible and where concession is safe! What activity and what wisdom in the government of his vast patriarchate! Watch him through all the phases of his various destinies, See him now surrounded by the love and sympathy of his Alexandrians, now confronting hostile synods, now undertaking long and perilous journeys to defend his character from calumny, and to unmask before the head of the church the arts of heresy, now fearlessly proclaiming the truth at the court of the tyrannical Constantius, and now banished time after time from his diocese, his country, his friends, encompassed by perils from false brethren, perils from the sea, perils from the wilderness, and while surrounded by the lines of the Libyan desert, writing those immortal letters and treaties, where he consoles the persecuted sons of the church, confirms her wavering members, and refutes the elated heretics, productions that to the end of time will be the solace and the glory of the church. Behold him now at the close of his glorious career, after forty years incessant toil, hardship, and suffering, with a frame unbent, and a mind unsubdued by age, still ready to fight new battles for the Lord, spared by heaven to see the great adversary he had so long combated, the adversary of Christ, the monster Arianism, gasping and bleeding from his death wound. Behold the veteran warrior, now honored by the degenerate court, which had so long persecuted him. Consoled by the respect and sympathy of the Christian world, consulted on all important affairs by the dignitaries of the church, near or remote, and nerving the courage and directing the counsels of that young, hopeful band of Christ's soldiers, the Basils, the Nazianzans, and the Nysus, 
who were destined to follow up the victory he had achieved and annihilate the great antagonist of the church. But Athanasius attained to this great authority in the church only because he had been most obedient and most faithful to the authority of the church. It was not by his personal genius, learning, and sanctity alone that he obtained such a prodigious ascendancy over the minds of his contemporaries, but also by the weight he derived from the sanction of the church and its visible head. What a glorious part doth not the Holy Roman See act in this Arian contest? While orthodox prelates are driven from their sees, while some quail before triumphant heresy, and others are incautiously entrapped into the acceptance of ambiguous formularies, while the faithful are distracted by the conflicting decisions of hostile synods, and doctrine is undermined and discipline subverted by intruded heretical bishops. The Roman pontiffs ever uphold the authority of the Nicene Council, quash the decrees of heretical provincial synods, restore to their church the banished prelates, condemn their adversaries, everywhere enforce canonical discipline, and sometimes overawe the hostile potentates of the earth. The approbation which this work universally received, the spirit of zealous orthodoxy that pervaded its pages, the immense patristic and historical learning it displayed, and the original and profound views with which it abounded, drew more and more the attention of Protestant as well as Catholic Germany towards its illustrious author. End of section 6